Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. Steve, you know, I want to put out a shout out to all of our listeners in foreign countries. Uh, We recently upped our tier on our podcast so we could see where our listeners come from and were astounded to find dozens and dozens of you in the UK, in Australia, in New Zealand, Australia, New Zealand. We have like dozens of listeners out there. Got them in Canada, not surprisingly. Lots in Ireland, lots of listeners in Ireland. Norway, the Czech Republic, Belgium, some in India, Germany, the Netherlands. So listen, if you are out there in one of these countries and you're listening to us, you know what, send us an email, feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Let us know who you are and how you're out there and what your connection is to Ohio. And you know what? Maybe we can get some of you on as uh, armchair detectives if you've got connections to some of these uh, counties and, and we can get you a good story. We could get you on as an armchair detective. Isn't that fun, Steve? Absolutely. I love seeing all these listeners all over the place. We really appreciate it. And uh, tell a friend, tell family members. Let's get some more. Can you imagine the challenges of trying to convict someone of murder when you don't have a body? It is a very rare feat, but one that the Clinton County Prosecutor's Office pulled off some 20 years ago. In this case, the suspect to this day insists he didn't do it, which means he certainly isn't going to cooperate with authorities and tell them where the body is. So even if you're 100% sure you've got the right guy, there's a part of this story that never gets resolved. Where is the victim? In the case of Carrie Culberson, her family says they can never have complete peace. They are still praying for the day they can bring her home for a proper burial. And last year, they had the local media sharing their story in the hopes that some tip would point in the right direction. So this is Carrie's story. Blanchester, Ohio is a village of about 4,000 folks straddling Clinton and Warren counties. That's about 30 miles northeast of Cincinnati on the way toward Columbus. And in 1996, it was home to Clarissa Ann Culberson, a 22-year-old young woman making her way in the world. Those who knew her described her as bubbly, fun, and genuine. She lived on Bourbon Street with her mother, Deborah, and her 15-year-old sister, Christina. She was a pretty girl, five foot four inches with long brown hair and brown eyes, a former cheerleader at Blanchester High School. She was athletic. She played soccer in school and still played volleyball a health nut who worked out daily and coached her friends on the virtues of healthy eating. She paid her bills with her job as a nail technician, but she had just taken a placement test to enroll at Southern State Community College in Wilmington, North Carolina, a first step toward her long-term goal of becoming a nurse. 
Carrie had spent the past two years in a relationship with a local 23-year-old man named Vincent Doan, a relationship that was coming to a violent and troubling end. On August 28, 1996, Carrie spent the evening with her friends. They picked her up after dinner around 7 p.m., played volleyball, and hung out. At one point, they stopped at a local tavern where Vince Doan showed up, argued with Carrie, and left in a rage. After their evening ended, Carrie's friends took her home and dropped her off just after 11.30 p.m. They watched as she walked past a large maple tree on her way to the porch, then drove away. They didn't know it, but Carrie did not go inside. Across the street, a neighbor, Kim Lannard, was on her own front porch, having her last cigarette of the day. She watched as Carrie said goodbye to her friends and as their car disappeared down the street. But then she saw Carrie walk over to her own car, a red 1989 Honda CRX. She got inside and quietly backed out of the driveway. She drove away with her headlights off leaving her neighbor to wonder what she was sneaking off to. The next morning, Carrie's mom, Debbie, realized her daughter wasn't home. Not only that, but her Honda had disappeared from the driveway. She called Carrie's cell phone repeatedly, but it went unanswered. After learning her friends didn't have a clue where she might be, she called the police. Blanchester Police and the Clinton County Sheriff's Office responded. Detectives, of course, made Vincent Doan their next visit. Vince lived in Blanchester with his father, Lawrence Baker, and the pair operated a towing company together. But Vince wasn't there. His father said he also hadn't come home that night. Police wondered, could it be that Carrie and Vince had gone off together? But that wasn't adding up. As the days passed, there was no activity on Carrie's cell phone, nor her credit card, nor her bank accounts. And investigators were becoming increasingly confident that Carrie wasn't likely to be running away with Vince. Doan was known for being violent. Carrie's friends had seen the evidence on her. Her mother had even banned Doan from the house, even as her daughter continued to try and see him. Then, just one month before Carrie vanished, Doan threw a space heater at her, splitting open her head. Carrie filed assault charges in that case. A pretrial hearing had been set for September 20. That was less than a month away. Now, it would be wrong to say Carrie should have been surprised by this behavior. She knew Doan from high school though he was a couple of years older than her. But their relationship really grew while he was in custody on an attempted murder charge. In that case, he had shot his own best friend in the face after catching him with his girlfriend. Carrie visited him in jail, and after Doan pleaded down to a misdemeanor charge, which allowed him to get released, he and Carrie began dating. Now, after Carrie vanished, her face adorned posters, tacked at telephone poles, store counters, and car windows all over her hometown. 
Volunteers joined the search of fields, barns, back roads, and abandoned houses. Some 500 townspeople gathered at the spot in the front of the house where Carrie was last seen to hold a candlelight prayer vigil and sing hymns. A $10,000 reward brought in a flood of leads with dozens of alleged sightings saying Carrie and Vince were alive. In one case, deputies traveled across the state to look into a suggestion that they would find Carrie in an apartment there. Police found the woman all right, and she was the absolute spitting image of Carrie Culberson, but she wasn't Carrie. One week after the pair vanished, Vince Stone was back in town, alone. Police went to his house, but Doan refused to talk to them, and his father refused a voluntary search of his property. The next day, armed with a warrant, officers went back with a dog trained to sniff out decomposition. The dog honed in on a pond that was on the property and barked aggressively. The day after that, equipment was brought in to drain the pond. They didn't find a body, but they found something else. There were footprints in the thick mud under the water. Now, experts said a footprint underwater would probably only last a few hours, maybe 12 or more. Then it would erode. Someone had to have stepped into the muddy bottom of that pond the previous night. Unfortunately, authorities did not set anyone to guard that pond until they could get back to it. Between the cadaver dog's indication and the footprints in the mud, deputies were beginning to think Carrie had been in the pond, but that her body was removed the night before. And further investigation turned up that a call was placed to the Doan house at 2 a.m. That's the morning before the pond was drained, and it was made from a payphone along the Ohio River. Is that where Vince went? Was he there, getting rid of her body again in the river? It was intriguing evidence, but not enough to charge someone with murder. It would take another year to get what detectives called a game changer. A woman went to the Clinton County Sheriff's Department. Her name was Lori Baker, and she was married to Tracy, half-brother to Vincent Doan. She told detectives a story about the night Carrie disappeared. Vince Stone came to her house that night, she said, and he and his brother Tracy left with garbage bags and a gun. The pair were gone for about four hours, and when they returned, they were covered in blood. After her story came out, Tracy Baker fled the state. An APB was put out for him and his truck, and just a day later, police in Burlington, Kentucky, recognized it. They waited for Baker to return to his truck, then approached him. He ran, but they caught him. In his truck, they found a pair of boots with red stain on the toe and sent it off for testing. The stain came back blood, but not Carrie's. It was Baker's own blood. Still, the Clinton County prosecutor felt it had enough now to take a huge risk, and they presented what they knew to a grand jury. Despite the lack of physical evidence, the grand jury issued an indictment. The case would go to trial. The prosecutor had that stunning testimony from Lori Baker about the night with the garbage bags and the bloody clothes. 
But they also had another surprise, an eyewitness that had never been revealed publicly before. A woman who lived near Vincent Doan's home saw him attacking a woman the night Carrie vanished. The witness said it happened between 12.30 and 1 a.m. that morning. She saw Doan chasing the woman near Southright and East Streets. And as the woman struggled to get free, Doan grabbed her by the hair and held her while repeatedly punching her in the face with his fist and yelling, I told you if you ever tried to leave me, I'd kill you. A red Honda was parked nearby with the driver's door open. The witness then saw the pair drive away in the Honda, leaving behind Doan's own black Mustang. The prosecutor had another surprise witness, Vince Doan's cellmate. Mitchell Everson told police Doan confessed to killing Carrie. He said the pair were watching the 10 o'clock news one night when Carrie's story was aired. He said Doan told him he used to lay awake at night thinking of a hundred different ways to kill her and that he finally did it. The jury felt they had enough. They put Doan behind bars. He is currently serving a life sentence without the chance for parole. Half a year later, the prosecutor decided to use the same strategy against Doan's half-brother, Tracy Baker, for helping him get rid of Carrie's body. A jury convicted him also, and he served eight years in prison before being released in 2005. Vince and Tracy's father, Lawrence Baker, he was also charged with helping to cover up the killing, but a jury acquitted him. Carrie's family said they felt justice was served, but they still feel like a part of their family is missing. Deb Culberson said there can never be complete peace without being able to bring her daughter home and properly bury her. There have been numerous searches for Carrie, but they aren't getting help from Vincent Doan, who still proclaims his innocence. In the years since this happened, there have been several interesting twists to this case. After Vince Doan's conviction, another arrest. This time, Blanchester Police Chief Richard Payton. He was arrested and charged with three felony counts of obstructing justice and dereliction of duty. Authorities said he acted inappropriately in the first few days after Carrie's disappearance. He warned Vince Stone and his family, shared evidence with them, and destroyed or concealed other evidence. He ultimately pleaded guilty to dereliction of duty and retired to Florida. Meanwhile, Carrie Culberson's family sued the village of Blanchester and its police chief in a civil suit, saying their mishandling of the case lost them their daughter's body. Turns out, Chief Payton had declined the offer of a sheriff to stay at the pond where the cadaver dog had picked up Carrie's scent. And then the chief chose to leave the site unprotected. That's the night authorities believed Don and his family moved the body from the pond. The Culbersons won their civil case, and the town of Blanchester was ordered to pay them $2 million dollars. The settlement also required the police department to put a memorial to Carrie and all victims of domestic violence outside the police station and to send police officers to training on how to handle domestic violence calls. In another story, this one in 2004, 
two informants, including one that was in contact with Vince Stone from his prison cell, told authorities that Carey was buried in a pole barn in Brown County's Perry Township on Fayetteville Blanchester Road. A friend of Vince Stone's brother had lived on the property at the time of Carey's disappearance. Sheriff's departments from Brown and Claremont counties and the FBI convened on the site and spent three weeks digging it up. They turned up duct tape, hairs, a black plastic bag, a sock, and a smiley face t-shirt that Deb Culperson confirmed belonged to her daughter. Unfortunately, nothing they found revealed any DNA evidence, and there were no remains to be found. This incident made news again soon after, not for what they found, but for what they left behind. A mess. The searchers had demolished a concrete floor, ruined a septic system, dumped dirt on top of cars and other equipment in the barn, and left behind a 15-foot deep hole filled with water. Then left, telling the homeowner they were not under any obligation to fix what they had just done. Barn owner Jeanette Spangler, now she's the mother of the man who was friends with Doan's brother, sued for damages. I found stories saying an appeals court confirmed she had the right to bring a lawsuit, but I could not find a story about the resolution of this case. It's quite possible it was either settled out of court or dropped. One more story. This one just five years ago in 2015. Vince Stone has been serving his time at Madison Correctional Institute, and he was participating in a program where prisoners can volunteer to train dogs for pet therapy and as service dogs for the handicapped. One day, a dog attacked Doan, biting off a chunk of his nose and tearing his cheek. Doan sued the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction for $25,000, and the case was settled for $7,500. Now, a couple of years ago, Major Brad Pickett of the Clinton County Sheriff's Office said, tips still come in about this case. They have not given up hope that someday they might be able to bring Carrie home again. If you know something that can help them, please call. The Clinton County Sheriff's Office is 937 382-1611. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.